Bibles with you, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Once more, 2 Timothy chapter 2. The pastoral letters are filled with trustworthy sayings, as the text calls them, that the church can and must take to heart for its preservation. And these are built on the word of truth, on the gospel. To the degree that the church strays, from a stubborn focus on the gospel, it will become increasingly corrupted by what takes its place. The church is not built by the desires or opinions or preferences and traditions of people. These are not the things that ensure its preservation or survival from God's reckoning. They may keep a building open. They are not what sustains the church. The church is built by Jesus Christ on the foundation of the apostles and prophets in the testimony of our Lord, the gospel. Beloved, if we stray from this, we will die. And again, as I've, as I've said, that doesn't mean you can't keep the lights on or keep a building open. A church can have Ichabod, the glorious departed, written over its doors and still be open for business, right? But a church's life and quality is not measured by those things. It's measured by its relentless commitment to the truth at the expense of literally everything else. That is why the charge to Timothy and Titus later in these letters is so important and is the reason why it continues to fall on the shoulders of every minister of the gospel since as long as the world exists, the passions of our flesh will be a threat to the church and its mission. The promise to us is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the house that Jesus is building. What we need to realize is that we are not threatened mainly by what is false outside of the church, but by the ongoing desire for what is not the truth inside the church, as well as the selfish passions of people who are willing to compromise or ignore the truth for the sake of their own Gain In our text this morning, Paul called Timothy to cleanse himself and the church of the passions that corrupt the truth so that both the church and the minister would be honorable vessels for the Lord. We need the word of truth, the gospel, to cleanse us of being controlled by our desires so that our doctrine and our unity will glorify the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I ask you that for your name and for your son and for your people who will hear and for all those present, God, that you would please control and overshadow my mouth, my mind, that your word is what would be spoken, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 14 here of chapter 2, remind them of these things. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. The call is always back to the truth. Remind them, remind the church of what was true in verses 11 through 13 mainly. If you look there, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now notice how succinct and tight those verses are. These sayings were constructed, in fact, they were intended to be memorized by God's people. And the call is to keep reminding the church of what is at stake in what we preach and what we proclaim. We need to remember the simple truth. If we have died with him, if we've been crucified with Christ, we will live with him, period. If we endure to the end through faith by God's grace, we will reign with him, period. If we deny him with our mouths, he will deny us, proving that we never knew him, period. And if we falter and lapse, or as we falter and lapse into faithlessness, God will not abandon but remain faithful to us, Because he cannot deny himself, and he's made a promise to us, period. We need to be reminded of these things for as long as this text stands in Scripture, which means literally until the end of time. Four stanzas 
invaluable, crucial, eternal truth. Jesus will bring all who trust in him by grace, through faith, his elect to eternal salvation, even though we may falter. The believer needs to be reminded of this all the time. It sounds so straightforward. It's so simple. All the fat is trimmed off of those sentences. That is why we are also told in the very same verse not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Beloved, there is ultimately no worthwhile benefit in arguing into oblivion the finer points of all theology. Stay focused on the main truth. The Holy Spirit will bring to mind everything that we need from the Word as we need it. The more talk, the more error. The more words, the more damage. Beloved, we don't own this. We didn't make this up. We are not capable of nuancing it or fixing it into something a little better, a little more useful, a little more sufficient, a little more relevant We don't own it. We can't even boast about our belief in it because that too was granted to us by grace. So quarreling over words as though we can arrive at perfection through the proper amount of nuance and qualification and understanding is a very serious matter in the church. It was wreaking havoc on the church in Ephesus. If you remember, as we looked at in these letters, remember 1 Timothy 6, 4 and 5. Those that taught any different doctrine than the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness have, as Paul calls it, an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Same phrase, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. The truth that saves is straightforward and simple. It's packed with power. It's packed with assurance. It is more than sufficient to hold the believer steady. Going too far beyond it for any reason is warned against. The preacher then is commanded to charge God's people, do not quarrel about words. These kinds of things ruin the hearers. Notice that. That assumes that the people doing the quarreling are already ruined. But the more it lasts, the longer it goes, it ruins the hearers. Such things do no good. They only, look at how exclusive those things are. They do no good. They only bring ruin to those who hear it. So, beloved, do we understand, as God's people, the power and the importance of our words, of all words? Words are never neutral. They either build up or here they ruin. What are the implications of that for the church? It's best to keep our words brief and our focus on the word of the truth, the gospel. Speculating, rambling, going on and on and on about details and implications and all these things at best distracts and at worst destroys people. Since that's the case about words, What is the charge to the preacher, a man who is called to talk for a living, to speak words all the time? Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is a call for the straight, careful, and precise communication of the word of the truth which is the gospel, as Paul calls it in Ephesians 1.13, Colossians 1.5. We see it here in 1.8. Beloved, there is a depth to the simplicity of the word of truth, and it does not mean that there is little or nothing substantial in its simplicity. The fact that it's simple doesn't mean that it's thin. Or is it deep or that it can't be mined for truth? And Timothy is called to do his best to be a worker with the word that would not need to be ashamed to stand in front of the form and give an account for his work. That goes back to verse 7. At least three times in his letters to Timothy, Paul tells him how much work the ministry of the word is supposed to be. And things like verse 14 imply that the preacher doesn't need to get bogged down in things that aren't his calling. 
To rightly divide the word of truth, which takes work, is a 2,000 years old and counting apostolic command to every preacher of the gospel. Precision and accuracy is a command. This text cannot be taken lightly. When we don't, when the preacher doesn't put in the work, scripture can be taken out of context in the name of making a point, can be misapplied. Texts can and will be read through the preacher's favorite lens, right? Whether it's psychology, therapy, politics, chauvinism, social issues, domestic issues. Scripture can be moralized to be nothing more than a motivational speech of some kind. It can be doctrinalized so that it's just proof texting for the preacher's preferences. Or it can be completely ignored, silenced. William Willimon said that today's preaching, which if, if you, again, you, you, the more that you listen to, the more that you'll hear it. Today's preaching reduces salvation to self-esteem, sin to maladjustment, church to group therapy, and Jesus to dear Abby. The preacher is called and commanded to do his work so well that he can stand before God himself unashamed of it. That That is a unbelievable mark to try to hit. And and look, that's not for his sake. And it's certainly not for his salvation. Why? For the faith and hope of the church, beloved, for you. We live by the word rightly divided or we will die without it. Those are our options. So again, on the other end of this charge, on the other side of it is another prohibition about getting wrapped up in mere talk. Look at verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hamanius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Jesus does not need his word adjusted, added to, subtracted from, by the personal opinions and preferences of the preacher. What has Paul told him? Stay fixed on the pattern of sound words that came from Jesus to Paul, to Timothy, to us today. The goal for the preacher is to be unoriginal, to be nothing more than a mockingbird singing the same song the church has been singing for ages. God's word is not rightly divided when there's too much talk, babble. And again, he's referring to that speculation that he's been talking about, speculation about the gospel rather than the gospel. Those are two different things. The minute all of our time is spent in implications, whatever time you're spending not fixed on the truth is time spent not fixed on the truth. Right? And the question needs to be, why would we do that? Why would we go where we're speculating about what the truth is rather than stay in what the truth is. Why would we do that? The minute we begin to talk and speculate about what isn't there, rather than staying fixed on what is there, we've not become more spiritual. We're not becoming increasingly enlightened. We've become irreverent, right? We aren't preaching, we're babbling. And the movement in the hearts of people that results from that is a movement downward. Into ungodliness, ironically. If the goal is godliness, the means to get there is Christ revealed to us in the gospel. Not a man's personal ideas or speculations about what really make a person holy, right? There's no need to forbid what scripture does not. There's no need to subtract to what scripture has said. Again, that's not mature. It's not super spiritual. It's actually irreverent when we do that. That Talk that isn't fixed on godliness as it has been revealed by Christ leads people into more sin, not less. And so we're finding as we study, the more we add, the more we corrupt. When people begin to build onto Scripture, because that's usually what it is. A subtraction from Scripture you can recognize right away, right? 
I'll talk about it in just a few minutes. But if I were to say something that was a complete departure from the word of God, most of you would hear that and thank God reject it the minute it came out of my mouth. Right. If I were to say, like, it's not really God who created the world or something, you would hear that and say, wait a second. It's the additions that cause the most damage, in my opinion. It's, it's, it's going beyond it. It's saying, yes, we know it says this, but also maybe, what is the point of that? It's as villainous as subtraction. It's just much more deceptive, which makes it much more dangerous. When people begin to build on to scripture with their opinions, with their feelings, or their convictions, right? It always sounds so spiritual. The result is always ungodliness. That kind of talk is gangrenous, Paul says. It infects the church like rotting flesh. That's his metaphor. Hymenius. He was mentioned alongside a man named Alexander, if you remember, way back in 1 Timothy 1.20. Both those men had been turned over to Satan, Paul says, excommunicated for their irreverent teaching. Well, Hymenius didn't stop teaching. He didn't stop babbling, spreading his horrible doctrine. He just found a new sidekick. Named Philetus here in verse 17. And they're still working, apparently, to spread this infection. Beloved, not all doctrine is created equal. There are wrong things that cannot be taught in the church. They cannot be. There is a time then to be intolerant of certain things and say, enough is enough. Stop that or leave. This kind of talk leads to infection. And what do you have to do with infection? You have to get it out of a body even if that means amputation, so that the whole body isn't destroyed. There are teachers that need to be silenced and removed. These two men had swerved from the truth. That's an interesting image. So the truth was there. It was accessible. It was simple and straightforward. It was right in front of them, but they swerved to miss it and headed instead for what they thought. And they were upsetting the faith of some. It's an infection. It damages people's faith. It leads to a lack of assurance when the word from God in Christ is pure assurance. If he remains, or if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Full stop. Right? Well, what, what, but what if you, what if you're really faithless? What if, what if, You get into a fight with your wife and you lose your temper and you scream at her and you blow up and you rush out of the house and you jump in your car and you gun it and you're in a wreck and you die. Are you saved then? Yeah. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. But what? But what? Who wants it to be the other way? If you're honest, who wants it to be? What if you just don't whisper the prayer at the right moment before you die? Is the cross that thin? Does Jesus, I did, I died for all of your sin except if you mess up five minutes before you die. I can't cover that one. I can't do it. Beloved, no, see, that's what we do. We do it, I think, sometimes with The desire to be holy, Christians desire to be holy, to please the Lord with their conduct, to repent. When we sin, all of that, yes, a million times, absolutely. But do you realize the burden we are putting ourselves under that ignores the cross to live like there's something hanging out there, some scenario that just trumps all of it? And 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 who is so holy that they're monitoring themselves so closely, which assumes only sins of Commission, right? What if you didn't do something you were supposed to and you didn't even realize it? What if you should have given money to that guy begging instead of thinking, well, he's just going to use it on drugs? Um, That's not a categorical statement about whether or not you should do that. I'm saying, what if you were supposed to and you didn't and you didn't ask for forgiveness and you die? You see how, do you hear how this just becomes pure insanity? I, I mean, I... Real quick, I, I, no, it's gonna waste time. It's a dumb story to waste time. It will not help. Never mind. Never mind. The point is, why, why would we do that? What do we think we're accomplishing when we do that? 
Why would we try to void the word of God? Because that's what we're doing. How does that help anybody? It upsets faith. It doesn't strengthen it. The faith of the believer is not meant to be upset. That doesn't strengthen our faith. And that which upsets faith, God's word compares to gangrene. The goal of speaking the truth is not to get people to question their faith, but to rest in God's grace. So it's not live and let live then with bad doctrine. It's not. It's teach the truth or be quiet. Hymenius and Philetus were teaching what became a prominent heresy that said when it was said well, the resurrection did happen. He's not talking here about the resurrection of Christ. This is addressing the resurrection of believers at the end of all things or in the future, depending on your eschatology. However, men like Hymenaeus and Philetus were saying, well, that's already happened, meaning we're already home. We're already there. Nothing matters because all believers have already been resurrected. Everything's done. We're technically already in heaven. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Paul, what he's doing here, again, Paul is the master with God's word. Paul wants to be clear on how it will turn out for those that upset the faith of people in the church with false doctrine that is contrary to the truth of the gospel. So, in verse 19, he recalls a very famous event in Israel's history from number 16. Three Levites, Korah, Dothan, and Abiram, and some 250 other leaders revolted against Moses' leadership in an effort really to take over the priesthood. They rise up. Moses falls down on his face before God and tells them, all right, tomorrow we'll see. Tomorrow the Lord is going to make clear who is his and who is not. So Moses sets up a confrontation. Korah, Dothan, and Abiram and all their families, their whole families, and that of the 250 leaders who went with them were to present themselves carrying these priestly censers and stand before Aaron and his priests bearing their censers and then the glory of the Lord appeared. God ordered Moses and the rest of the congregation to distance themselves from Korah and the others. Moses prophesied. He spoke the true word of God. The earth split apart, swallowed Korah's rebellion whole, all of them, all their families, all their livestock, all their tents, every trace of them. Then fire rained down on the other 250, incinerating them. God had delivered Moses just as he had said the day before. In the morning, the Lord will show who is his. The Lord knows those who are his, as it says in number 16.5 in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, which is what Paul is quoting from in the first part of verse 19. Now, very quickly, this does not mean that if you go against the preacher, God will kill you. No, that's not what this means. I am just a man. And by the way, I am no Moses. Okay? I'm just a man. What it does mean is that the mark, the mark of those who are faithful is that they revere and honor God's word as given rather than question it and speculate and try to change it. It's the truth that the church is built on, not the preacher. Because in our day, the glory of the Lord has also appeared, but once and for all in the word of the truth about Jesus Christ in the gospel. It's even more serious now to submit completely to God's revelation. The Lord knows those who are his. They honor his word, unlike false prophets, unlike men like Hymenaeus and Philetus. And so in the second part of verse 19, <clears throat> there's a context for the statement let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let those who undertake to preach God's word come away from the sinful ungodliness of trying to change it to say what they want. And let those who claim to be God's child not ignore it to suit their own passions and desires. The preacher must be purified of his fleshly desires to change or challenge God's word. The church must be purified of the selfishness that lets us ignore the word as it's convenient. That's iniquity. It's gangrene in the body of Christ. Notice how the text turns immediately to the church. 
In verse 20, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This great house is the household of God in First Timothy 3.15, the pillar and buttress of what? The truth. The church must cleanse itself of false teachers and their erroneous doctrines, wood and clay, and return to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, gold and silver. This is precisely what it means to be cleansed for honorable use, to wash out all lies, all speculation, all false doctrine, and proclaim the pure gospel of Jesus Christ with the utmost precision and clarity. Then... A church may glorify God. Then a preacher is rightly dividing the word. Then a church is a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master, ready for every good work. Did you know that that is what leads to that fruit? The root of an exclusive focus on the word of the truth, the gospel. We tend to think or try to use the gospel as some little, you know, five or six verse trinket that you just use to close the deal to get someone to pray the prayer. And that's as much use as the gospel is in the church. Paul says if your church isn't fixed on it for everything, it's a dishonorable vessel that is useless to the Father. Our usefulness and readiness as the church are tied directly, inseparably to our doctrine, beloved. We think that by working, we're automatically pleasing God with our service. But where the gospel is being marginalized or assumed or even ignored, all that work is for nothing when it comes to the Lord. And doesn't even glorify God. It makes us dishonorable to Him. So, the preacher must what in verse 22? Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord From a pure heart. Wood and clay in the heart of the preacher are his youthful passions. That isn't referring to something sensual or sexual here, but to the passions of a youthful temperament in context that can be so damaging to the church. Impatience, a harsher domineering spirit, contentiousness, flee from those things and pursue gold and silver, righteousness, faith, love, peace. Timothy must be a vessel for noble purposes, for Christ-centered ones, not his own. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the ministry of the noble servant of God whose use is honorable. Walk back through this charge with me. What Paul writes to Timothy, he writes to every preacher for all time. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. God's servant does not get involved in fights Over the color of the carpet is what that means. Or over why such and such can't sing that song they love. Or why we change the service to this time instead of that. These are foolish, ignorant things. And it's not that these types of things are necessarily foolish and ignorant in and of themselves. But the controversies and quarrels they breed most certainly are. When you compare them to what the preacher is to be focused on, back in verse 15, they become foolish and ignorant controversies that are a waste of his time and a drain on his spirit. The preacher must not involve himself with the things that breed quarrels. Could the Bible be any more clear here? It doesn't, that, by the way, that doesn't mean it's okay if other people want to be involved in these things, just not the preacher. 
It's that those types of things, they are church killers. Beloved, these types of controversies lay just under the surface of every church, and I hate to say it, including ours. Of course they do. We have to dig about that deeply for these things to come up, don't we? It's always resting under the surface. The bitterness, the anger, the unforgiveness, the hurt, the pain, it's always there. The perceived slights, the real slights, always resting under the surface. And the wrong touch here or there brings it all back up. And we're embroiled in a fight again. Why won't we listen to God's word? It's one thing to say it's inerrant and infallible. It's another thing to put your money where your mouth is when it disagrees with you. Why do we insist that we be heard? Why do we insist that we have a say? Why? Why do we insist on the things that breed needless quarrels and controversies. Why? The we applies to everyone in any church at every time. <clears throat> I've yet to sit in on or be a part of a church fight that didn't boil down ultimately to a person's personal desires that weren't being met. That's usually at the root of all of them. I've been in the ministry 19 years. I know that's not very long, but I'm still waiting for a worthwhile church fight. One that would say, if this one splits us in half, it's worth it. I'm still waiting on that. I don't mean I'm eagerly waiting on it at all. I mean, I thought the fights here were supposed to be important. You do, right? I thought this was supposed to matter. I thought this was supposed to be different than out there. Paul is reminding Timothy that people will disturb the peace of God's church because they disagree with the seating arrangement at a potluck. And he better not get himself involved in it. Shouldn't even entertain these types of foolish, ignorant controversies. In fact, if these kinds of things become too big of a problem, he'll need to cut it out of the church like gangrene. We don't do that. We let these things fester until we can't even do our mission anymore. Because everything is hogtied by these types of things. Paul knows that these are the controversies that will ruin a preacher. And they will, beloved. Do we hear God's word? It is not the doctrinal fights... And the hill's worth dying on where you actually die. It's the nothing fights, the irreverent babble, the foolish, ignorant controversies that suck the life out of a man's soul because they mean nothing against the backdrop of eternity. You have heard me say a lot, I think, about how the, the, just the litany of mistakes and selfishness and pride that plagued me in my first pastorate. But, I'm not going to justify myself here. I'm just going to tell you a little, a little tale. The first church fight, besides the one over whether or not we were going to have a Christmas Eve service, which was a fight in my interview, that was, that was a serious fight. So I, I give my whole presentation about how, you know, they want me to know you're going to be the pastor. You're possibly going to be the pastor here. Tell us what you're about. Tell us the whole thing. So I say my whole thing. I read from the Bible. I give like a little sermon. Do you have any questions? This was the congregational Q&A. Lady goes, you going to have a Christmas Eve service? Well, yes, that's what all this was about. My bad. I didn't. I thought, sure, yeah, I don't care. Right. But anyway, that wasn't it. The first big fight that I ever had was over the Kool-Aid during VBS. And it when I say fight, I had three ladies that I thought were the sweetest ladies on the planet (laughs) until you got in their pantry in the kitchen, which is where they hid their supplies, and some well-meaning teenage boy during VBS, they ran out of Kool-Aid, he jimmied the door open because they had a key, and he got Kool-Aid out of there, and boy, I'll tell you what, you thought Lot was bad. You do not take church Kool-Aid 
out of the pantry for your own personal VBS use. Yeah. You know why they're not laughing that hard? Because we've all had those fights. That church still is divided, impotent in their community. They're still open. I'm not tearing them down. I will give an account. I will give an account because I abandoned them because I didn't want to mess with them. So I will give an account. But they're still nothing. But I'll tell you, I bet nobody uses their own Kool-Aid anymore. Those aren't bad, evil ladies. Those are wonderful ladies. I got to know each and every one of them. What in the world happened? Somewhere along the line, everything became about that. That's mine. That's ours. You don't take... I mean, how does that happen to the place on earth that preaches the forgiveness of sins? How does that take root? I mean, preachers should have nothing to do with those things that simply breed quarrels. You should have seen when when they said, so what are you going to do about it? And I, not thinking, said, it's Kool-Aid. That was it. That was it. The purpose of pastoral ministry, which again, I'm the pastor, so everything sounds self-serving. I hope, I don't want it to, but it just does. But the, the... Preachers should have nothing to do with this nonsense, the things that just breed quarrels. The purpose of pastoral ministry is not to manage high school lunchroom fights. Because in verse 24, the Lord's servant, the elder, 1 Timothy 3, 2, same qualifications again, must not be quarrelsome. It can't even be his personality type. How much, think of, pull back from the text for a minute. How much of Paul's instructions to the preacher... And the church warned against quarreling. You ever notice that? How many times we've seen that word or a derivative of it? The New Testament church was not free of the things that plague us today. And Paul is saying, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The church has no business quarreling is what that means. Somebody's going to have to take it on the chin and turn the other cheek. Or it will always be about Kool-Aid. If if the church has no business quarreling, then that means often our meetings become abominations, beloved. The word of God is clear. We don't do this to each other. We need each other. We We can't constantly be hurting And or resenting each other. We can't do this to one another. Look, especially not now. I mean, who knows what they're going to take from us next. We can't be like this, beloved. We won't survive like this. If that's what we are. This is how you know Jesus isn't being allowed in the house. Allah... Laodicea, knocking on the door, can I come in my own house? When we're fighting as though forgiveness and kindness and compassion and overlooking offenses have taken a back seat to retribution, getting even, etc. Now how, 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 can we, how can we say that every quarrel is sinful? Because that's what I'm driving at here. How can we say that? Don't people need to be put in their place sometimes? Because the Word of God says that the root of all quarreling is selfish desires. I didn't say that. James said that. James was an apostle. James chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Here it is. Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There's a big difference between contending for the truth and quarreling over things that are unnecessary. That text in James is the perfect case study for what Paul is talking about here because that James 4, 1 and 2 is one of those texts that we'll ignore and pretend isn't there 
any and every time we feel that our grievance with someone is justified and we have every right to feel the way we feel and should absolutely speak up about it. No, beloved, who has that gift in the body of Christ? The one that is constantly supposed to stir up and remind so that there's division and quarreling. We don't fight and quarrel according to the Bible because of what other people have done to us. We fight and quarrel, the Holy Spirit of God says, because our passions are at war within us. We want something we don't have, and doggone it, we're going to get it, so let's go to war. That's what the Bible says. The exact same passions, these passions, make us ignore the Word of God in texts like this so that we can serve ourselves in our desires. So we either ignore or we argue with the Word of God, showing by our rejection of it that we are not His, 2 Timothy 2, 19. Believers are free to struggle with the Word, to wrestle with it, to try to understand it, to, to ask questions in that tone, I don't understand, help me, this doesn't make sense, even when it's hard. But God's children are not free to tell God he's wrong or to ignore him or tell him he should have said something else. So, will we continue to blame discord in our churches on other people or will we get on our knees and faces before God, confess our sins, our passions, so that we build up rather than upset each other's faith? The preacher's calling, he doesn't have that option to be is to be kind to everyone in verse 24. That's the calling, not to pick sides and fight and quarrel all the time. That's why I don't try to change too much at any one time, at least I don't think. That's why this COVID thing is making me rethink my entire calling. I'm serious. I, I hate fighting. I hate quarreling. I hate the uneasiness that stems from these kinds of things. Makes me question everything. What are you doing? Why does it matter? This is where your preacher struggles. I'm sorry that's what you got. My calling, as with Timothy and every elder, is recalled again here in verse 24 to be able to teach. I have to rest in that. I need to be able to to focus on the word for the sake of my calling in verse 15 and your faith in verse 24, or I'm not qualified. Right? While, while patiently enduring evil. Really? How, how do you patiently endure evil? Evil stinks. But no, the, the honorable servant of God endures it with patience because we're called to shepherd the flock of God after God's own heart and he doesn't grow weary or impatient with his little sheep. So the elder isn't a nitpicker. He's, we aren't micromanagers. We aren't arguers and quarrelers. We're shepherds, beloved. That's the calling. We can't be bowls in a china shop. We, we, we have to rein it in. We, we, we aren't given to the church to manage it like a business, but to nurture it like baby sheep to full-grown maturity in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, if you don't pray for me, I will not hold up. Right? I, I don't have this in me. I'm telling you that. Pray for me. We belong to God. We must submit to God. Right? The, the preacher must correct his opponents with gentleness. So correction is required of the preacher when there are those who resist the centrality of the gospel, but gentleness never seems like what correction calls for, and yet that's the calling. Jesus is our Lord. He, Jesus doesn't beat the sheep. He doesn't abuse them. He chastises them when necessary in love as his own sons. Right? That's different. That's, that's not abuse. It's not like punitive punishment. Timothy has serious opponents, and he's called to gentleness with them. Why? Because that's what will adorn the doctrine, beloved. This is what displays the gospel. In other words, what we are here, what we're about as a church, never calls for us to be harsh with one another. So what's going on inside of us if we are like that with each other? What's happening? 
What's wrong? How badly do we all as individuals need Jesus? Look, look at where these things take Paul in his words to Timothy about these awful opponents in verse 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So no matter how dark it gets, no matter how much it seems like lies will darken the truth, no matter how difficult it becomes to resist false doctrine and those that reject God's word, even inside the church, God may perhaps grant them repentance and rescue them from the devil's snares. God will just not stop being merciful to people. To believe or spread false doctrine is sinful. It's it's a sin to know the truth and deny it. Sin requires repentance. But beloved, notice this. Repentance has to be granted by God to a person. Even the desire to repent of our sins is a gift of God's grace that if He doesn't give, we will not do. So just how dependent on God are we here? Right? It would be unwise to become presumptuous then about flatly denying the truth. What would be better is to just bank on our need for God's mercy, our personal need for God's mercy. We need mercy so that we don't go astray, let alone if we already have. So what we ought to do as the church in light of this is pray that God grant repentance to people for believing and teaching what is false, not argue with them. Right? Isn't that interesting? You can't argue truth with people who believe they decide what truth is. It's pointless. It's just pointless. You can't win because they're always moving the goalposts, right? So arguing accomplishes nothing. But Timothy's hope in the difficulty of ministry, our hope in light of this opposition is that God may choose to bless our enemies with forgiveness. And of course it would take a miracle of the word to be delivered from this. Look who's behind all of it. Look at this. False teachers reject the truth because they've been captured by the devil in verse 26 who has corrupted their minds to do his will in the church. Satan is behind these gangrenous tumors in the church, using them as a strategy against us. He always has been. Satan imprisons people to do his bidding by diluting their minds against the truth. So ministry is and will always remain difficult. That's who the fight is with. Being pure and honorable honorable will be difficult. Suffering, hardship for the preacher, for the church is sure to come. But our God is full of mercy and he can deliver. This is our hope. I believe this text teaches us that Satan's will is to destroy the church through false doctrine and through infighting. I believe that's his will in the church. He captures people to do his bidding by diluting their minds against the truth, first of all. James also says in James 1.14 that we sin when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. Satan can't create things in you and I. He's a fallen angel. But he can work and is very good at working with the raw material we place in front of him. Like our desires. Satan's playground is the selfish desires and passions of our own hearts, beloved. That's where he enacts his strategy to destroy the church. Beloved, the preacher must fix his mind on the truth. And so must each and every one of you. False doctrine, again, is not always, maybe even rarely, so obvious that we know that's what it is. It's not always Jesus wasn't actually born of a virgin. Jesus wasn't actually God in the flesh. That's heresy, but you know that's heresy that, again, the minute you hear it, sometimes it's the simple twisting of verses to change their meaning so that we are the center of God's word and Jesus is not. Sometimes it's a simple addition to or small subtraction from The truth, stand firm in the spirit, beloved. Resist the pull of your flesh. Resist the devil. Resist his plot to use those desires to turn you into his servant. The call is to vigilance, beloved, in the pulpit and the pew. And Satan's servants don't usually wear black robes and goat heads. Sometimes they smile and have ministries. 
Sometimes their teeth are very white. But false doctrine upsets faith. It must be rejected. And God has given the church preachers who will study and work to be approved unto God as a defense against this. Again, pray for me that I will be an honorable vessel. I'm begging you. But Satan also means to destroy the church by stirring up our passions, not just against the truth, but against one another. Quarreling is as gangrenous as heresy, beloved. The mercy of our God that thrills us when we read about it at the end of this text is the mercy that we are now free to extend to one another regardless of one another. And we must do so or we will bite and devour one another. Beloved James would say these things ought not be so. We are called to depart from iniquity in the church and as the church. Therefore, we must make Jesus Christ and his message of salvation the priority of our church. It is the only way. We need the word of truth, the gospel, to cleanse us of being controlled by our desires so that our doctrine and our unity glorify God. Then, beloved, the lampstand will not go out. And he has promised to be with us. He has promised to be faithful. The church will stand. Because what God demands, God in his grace provides. Beloved, every time. Jesus has you. Take it to the bank. Take it to heaven. He has you. He has me. Fix your eyes on him. Look to Christ. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you this week. I pray that you'll be safe. I really do. I hope you're able to at least in some way to be with those you love and want to be with and offer gratitude to our Lord for all that he's done for us. God bless each and every one of you. I'm very thankful for you. I love our church. Have a wonderful week, beloved. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for all that you have provided for us. If we were to count our blessings, God, would it end? We praise you and thank you for who you are and all that you've done. Watch over your people. Bring us back together tonight. We ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.